Hey guys, Clint here. I just wanted to let you know that we're doing something special on the podcast today. This episode is being released on the day my son is born, so if you're hearing this, I'm a dad now. For this episode, I wanted to discuss a game that's all about fatherhood and accepting the challenges that come along with that journey. It's meant a lot to me on my journey down this path, and I really hope you enjoy it. Happy birthday, son. Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a monthly gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Clint Jones. And today we're talking about God of War. Developed by Santa Monica Studio, published by Sony Interactive Entertainment, the game was released for PS4 in April of 2018. Honestly, though, this is more of a reboot or reinventing of the series than anything. Uh, features a much older Kratos and shakes up the series in a really interesting way. Yep, and that's exactly why we're playing it. So, actually, it released on my birthday of all days. But the tone of this game is entirely different than anything previously in the series. For those who've played the earlier games, the original God of War 1, 2, and 3, where he's in Greek mythology and he's basically murdering his way through Greek pantheon, uh, I mean, those games are great, but they knew they couldn't make a game like that anymore, and this game is totally different. It's Kratos again, this time in Norse mythology, but it's all about him trying to be a dad which is such an odd move, but it works so well, and this game really spoke to me. Yeah, this game really does basically completely reinvent Kratos from an anti-hero into sort of a dad hero. You know, he uh, is much older, he's uh, less, you know, jumpy, more uh, heavy, and uh, that especially comes through in the fact that he's using an axe now instead of his signature Blades of Chaos, at least in the beginning. And, um... The game has a lot more sort of emotional stakes than there ever was in the original God of War series uh, that featured Kratos as, like you were saying, Clint, the mad murdering God of War uh, wrecking shop over in Greece. Yeah, it was a crazy turn on its head for, for the series. Like, like you said, it has way more emotional context than the original trilogy, but not only that, I think it's got more emotional depth than most games I've ever played, period. So when I played this game for the first time, this was about when me and Emily were first talking about, you know, having kids. And I've always been a little reluctant there. I don't know. I, I was always worried that, you know, like I, maybe I wouldn't have what it takes to be a good dad. But after watching, or I guess playing through this game, like something clicked in me. And I, I remember thinking at the, the end credits, when, when they finally rolled for this game, like I could do this. I could be a dad. And I was like excited about it. And that's why I want to talk about this game, because that is crazy that a game can make you feel something like that. It really is, and it, it goes to show like the relationship and the the bond that you build with these characters and the, their story over the course of the you know twenty to thirty hours you're spending with them is is really something that no other medium can do. But more so, it's um, really great that um, you know someone who is emotionally unavailable as Kratos and who has the checkered past or even just all black past of um, Kratos can change. This is really a game about a guy's complete transformation from a mad murdering bachelor into a uh, a dad. A dad who cares about his son. Yeah. Actually, so Corey Barlog, the, the game director for this game, he said if you could sum the entire game up in, in one sentence, it's just 
change is possible. And I think that is what really resonated with me. Like, obviously, when, when you're getting ready to be a parent or do any other major thing in your life, there's apprehension. There's all these other things. You're like, can I do this? I don't know. And it's just knowing that, yes, you're you're capable of change. You can adapt to this. You can become more than you currently are, and you can take on this challenge. And that was a huge part of what spoke to me from this from this game. Yeah, it's it really does come through. And um, if you watch their documentary, Raising Kratos, uh, you see that he speaks directly to the fact that in the intervening years between his last God of War game and now when he released um, God of War in spring of 2018, he became a parent. And he you know, learned a lot about, you know, what, what that does to his perspective on life, work-life balance, his priorities as a, as a human being and not just, um, you know, the director of a major media franchise. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was really cool. And we'll, I'm sure we'll put a link to it in, in the show notes, but for those of you that have a spare two hours, uh, first, I mean, first of all, play the game. Second of all, definitely check that out. I, I think you'll find it pretty interesting. I definitely did. Yeah, I, <laughs> there are so many things in that documentary that actually like resonated with me in my own life. Like, um, you know, after completing some really hellacious projects, just sort of like reevaluating on the need for work-life balance and uh, specifically flashbacks to projects where, all right, we're supposed to release next month, but there's 2000 <laughs> bugs. What do we do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've both been there. I've been in talks like that before. They're never easy, but, um, you know, whatever they did to get through this, they did a incredible job with, um, you know, really getting this game into a place where I consider it one of my all-time favorites and being able to message this huge change that this game brought to the series while sort of maintaining and expanding their fan base was really impressive. I agree. Let's start getting into, I guess, uh, what makes this game different or what this game is all about. Yeah, so in this game, uh, contrary to the previous games in the series, uh, you are playing as uh, both Kratos and Atreus, his son. So following the death of Kratos' second wife, Faye, they journey to fulfill her request that her ashes be spread at the highest peak in the Nine Realms. Um, Kratos is very secretive about his past uh, with Atreus. Uh, He's unaware that he is uh, the son of a god and that he has any divine blood in him. It's pretty interesting. They leave a lot about um, the intervening years very vague. They open on Faye's funeral um, and just sort of take the story uh, to progress from there. I mean, it's pretty clear that Kratos, since the last trilogy, has been running from his past. So last time we saw him, he was in Greek mythology. He's, you know, again, murdered his way through the entire Greek pantheon, including up to and including his dad, who is Zeus. But how that, you know, how that whole trilogy even started was Kratos was tricked by um, Ares, the god of war, um, into murdering his family, which is which, which is how this whole revenge-filled romp even yeah started. let's call it a romp yeah. <laughs> our favorite word yeah um. yeah, yeah it's, it's how this murder spree started basically so the fact that you even see kratos with a family ever again is crazy because that was his biggest weak point like that's, that's something i never thought you'd see that character revisit but now that he has he's definitely hiding that past from his from his kid he, kratos hasn't come to terms with himself he's been hiding this whole time that's right yeah and they Uh, play that up really big in the fact that this is a new land where Kratos is unknown. Uh, Contrary to the past where we'd spend the Greek pantheon, he's in Norse mythology now, uh, the realm of Midgard. So 
there is uh, a whole new pantheon for him to deal with, and it's going to be a lot different the way he deals with it than he dealt with the one in the past. We'll say that right up front. Yep, he's more of a calculated man now. Again, he's he's less focused on being a hero to or everyone. Or, yeah, however you want to look at it. He just wants to be a hero to his kid, I, I feel like, is, is the deal now. Like, he just wants to live a normal life. He wants to separate himself from what was before. But it's still not healthy because he's never actually dealt with it. He's just kind of run away from it. Yeah, he sees himself as being caught up in this cycle of violence, and he's doing everything within his power to have that cycle end with him and not pass that on to his son, Atreus. You know, he really wants something better for Atreus than the misery that all of that violence has caused his life. And I think that's really resonant just as, you know, a person. Like, I, I'm not a father, but I imagine if I was, I would want the very best for my kid as well. And that's just a super resonant theme that's relatable right up front. Yep, and the first thing everybody always says, uh, how, how are you going to be a parent? Everybody says, well, I'm not going to do it the way my parents did it. Like, uh, nobody has Kratos-level uh, bullshit in their past that I know, but we all have little things that we're trying to separate ourselves and ultimately our children from, too. And that definitely that that definitely came to bear here. Uh, but again, the problem at the beginning here is that he wants the cycle to end with him, but he's not dealt with the cycle, so it keeps coming back. And it's something that happens again and again in the game. It's just like if you don't deal with things, they do not get better. You have to admit to yourself who you are if you ever want to move past it. And that was another big theme that I thought was really resonant in this game for anybody, not just parents, but just people in general. Yeah, that's very true. And um, it it really comes out in how well um, the the actors that played uh, both Atreus and Kratos in this game were able to get that chemistry on screen. Um, their father-son chemistry, and that being, you know, Chris Judge as Kratos um, and Atre- Atreus being portrayed by Sonny Soljic, uh, just really have excellent on-screen chemistry where they're able to, you know, meaningfully portray this relationship and react. I mean, some of the, like, almost shoulder touches that kratos does in this game are genuinely heartbreaking god yes especially towards the beginning of the game i i mean i've got like so many notes on this but like there's so many moments where atreus just needs a dad like it's it's clear that kratos has been around but mainly this kid's been spending most of the time with the mom kratos just does not know how to deal with this kid so kratos is this big beefy badass and he doesn't (laughs) understand emotional nuance i mean he's not dumb but he just doesn't know how to deal with someone like that and he's got this kid and this kid is we don't know a ton about it but he's been sick in the past he's clearly he's weak now he's also very smart but kratos doesn't know how to interact with somebody like that it really does all get on the screen in a, in a big way when they do the interactions between kratos and atreus um in uh, cinematics or in uh little cutscenes between fights or even interstitial dialogue as you're you know journeying your way up a mountain or across the lake of the nine um, they have 30 hours to contextualize this relationship and talk about the past of it and you know how it evolves during the course of the game. And they use every second of that game. Yeah, they're always doing something. It did it very well. I mean, we've both played Red Dead Redemption 2, and that was another game that did this very well. But there's just this feeling of like organic conversation and character development that just goes on throughout the entire time. It just feels, like I said, very organic. Like they're always like, every time they're in the boat, they're talking to each other, bullshitting back and forth. Kratos is 
desperately trying to tell a cool story, which he always fails at because, yeah. you know, he's Kratos. But <laughs> Except for the very end where Atreus finally says, wow, you finally told a good story. And it's about why he gave him the name Atreus. It's very touching. And he also laughs because no one else was there to hear it. So it might as well have not happened. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one will ever believe that Kratos could tell a good story. But yeah, like all those little interactions, they may not mean much when you read them on a page, but when you see them play out in the context of the game and how you've been progressing in the story, it's the little things that make make it a a big story, I feel like. I don't I don't know. It it really plays into their emotional attachment to each other and finally coming to terms with each other. Yeah, it really is something to to behold and, you know, you don't often get this much time to watch a relationship develop and change. And it, it brings me to the point where we should probably just talk about Atreus as like the second protagonist of this game. In the past, it's always just been you, your Kratos, your one-man army who's going out and kicking ass. And now you have to, you know, add in this second element. And to be perfectly honest, Kratos didn't need a second element. Like he was plenty on his own. So it was really interesting to me how they were able to make Atreus additive to the experience of being Kratos. Yeah, and it wasn't just, I mean, obviously, as far as story progression goes, Atreus is like the main reason why we're here, right? You know, he's trying to bond with his son and fulfilling his wife's final request, which is obviously why she made this request. She wanted Kratos and Atreus to grow close together. But also in combat, he was also pretty additive in there too. So they did a good job of making this badass Kratos still benefit from having this little twerp run around with him <laughs> shooting you know shooting his bow and stuff and it was kind of cool too because you got to see that progression of not just his of their bond but him kratos is trying to teach him something too and what does kratos know more than anything kratos knows how to kill shit yeah he knows combat yeah so slowly he gives his son lessons and little compliments throughout the game and slowly you actually see atreus get a lot better he is very useful by the end of the game in fact the final boss you guys are pretty much just tag teaming the shit out of Balder, and it's kind of a sight to behold. Like it was, it's really cool seeing the, the difference from the beginning when he was too scared to kill a deer to the end where he's screaming at the top of his lungs, killing a god. Like, pretty cool. It's pretty awesome. He has a ton of like growth throughout the course of the game. His primary weapon is a bow. So he goes from just shooting arrows at enemies to maybe sneaking up behind them and, you know, pulling them back with his bow so that you can get a big, you know, instant kill shot on them. He learns additional abilities such as adding elements to his arrows like light or lightning. And there's just a there's a, a mechanical progression there, but more so than anything, it's the way he gets more confident, the way he talks about the world or comments after a big fight yeah one of my favorite ones ever and again kratos being complimentary is extremely difficult i remember like atreus just destroys it and i'm like man he did great and atreus of course asks you know how'd i do dad and he's like you <laughs> were adequate and I'm like that's the best thing he could say but still coming from kratos that was a big deal yeah, I, adequate I for a god turns out to be pretty fucking good for anyone else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, it was cool. They did again. This whole game was very organic and in almost every facet. So yes, the conversation was organic and how you saw growth there, the combat as well, and the progression in both of those fields for Atreus was, I don't know, it was palpable. It is. It's totally uh, palpable. Um, and an interesting thing that they do with Atreus throughout the course of the game is he generally goes through some swings of mood. Like after something that would be deeply affecting to him as a character, his comments get like 
really dark and you know at one point he learned when he learns of his divine heritage he gets really overconfident and becomes kind of a douchebag until he's brought down back to earth uh he definitely becomes like a a shitty teen for a little bit which is kind of funny to see yeah and then (laughs) it goes back like then all of a sudden he like has a drink of wine with kratos in uh in tears hall and like all is well in the world that was Uh, a cool moment for me it is it's a it's a great moment sometimes the shifts can seem a little abrupt but like it all works, you know? Yeah, none of it felt too abrupt for me. Again, yeah, yeah, that was a quick shift back. But kids have mood swings, man. This, <laughs> this felt very true to form. Like, they're all over the place, and they're looking to you to show them the right way. No, that's that's a good point. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that, like, uh, Corey Barlog straight up says, like, Atreus is directly inspired by his experience as a new father, right? So, like he apparently is seeing all of these things in his own, um, you know, young son. And it, it shows up, it shows on the screen that this is a person who is well-versed in dealing with a real world situation, like, like what Kratos is going through. Another really interesting thing happens with Atreus throughout the course of the game is he becomes Kratos' guide to Midgard. This is a place that uh, Kratos is unfamiliar with, and when could, uh, when Atreus is, you know, talking about uh, the the pantheon of uh, the Norse mythology and telling, you know, reading things for Kratos because well, he doesn't know the script of the native land, uh, he sort of inverts the master and student dynamic with uh, Kratos and he becomes the guide to the world that you know his father never really got a chance to experience but they're doing it together it's nice when you have a character like Kratos who is very introspective and quiet um, it was really important to have a good cast of characters around him that can be almost be his voice so I felt like Atreus was very much the encyclopedia part of that right he can speak for what's going on around and then you had Mimir who was a, you know, your snarky know-it-all guy, but he almost served as Kratos' uh, verbal conscience from time to time. Like when things were going wrong or, th- or when there was conflict, Mimir would be the one to speak up and put voice to it. And that's something Kratos would normally just internalize and we'd move on and he would kill someone uh, in, in the past games. I thought it was really cool how they used those tertiary characters to really flesh out the full voice of, of, of the narrative because you know Kratos isn't going to be the one to say half the shit. <laughs> yeah, there's there's not a lot of big Kratos monologues in this game, but you know when he does choose to say something, it's always very impactful. Correct. Um, he speaks with authority. <laughs> and grunts, mainly grunts. <laughs> a lot of grunts, a lot of authority. <laughs> um, this wouldn't be a God of War game without a very robust combat system. And boy, is it robust in this game. For sure, and it does take a bit of a turn from uh, from the previous entries. So in the previous entries, it was more, not top-down, but you were pretty far back, and they'd fill the screen with, I don't know, you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40 enemies, and you're just, you know, hacking and slashing your your, your way through. And this kind of brings it in. It, it, it brings it in tighter. It's not quite over the shoulder, but it's pretty damn close. Like, it's it's... It's almost a third-person action game this time around, which I felt made it more personal. It's hard to feel personal with something that you're standing far back and away from. It made the the fighting more visceral, for one, because you're right up in it. 
Um, but also it just made you feel more tightly connected with the character too. Definitely. And the uh, fact that you start off this game without your signature Blades of Chaos and you're using uh, your axe, the Leviathan axe, is a huge sea change for the combat. Um, Character-wise, the blades had to go as much as the old Kratos ways of murdering your way through a pantheon did, right? They signal his change right up at front. Like, this isn't old Blades of Chaos murdering Kratos. This is new axe-wielding fatherly kratos reluctantly killing kratos (laughs) right yes you know being dragged back into his old ways and that is that's that's huge but not only that but you're right about the third person perspective and the fact that this game is done in one continuous take there's no breaks for cinematics there's no cuts away from the action everything is from kratos and atreus's perspective yeah i thought that was really cool the first time i played it i don't even think i noticed it was happening i think the first time i i really noticed was when I uh, watched Raising Kratos for the first time and I'm like, holy shit, they did do that. I, full disclaimer, I've now played through this game in, in its entirety, I think three full times. And one of those times I played 50 hours and literally platinum trophied <laughs> it. So uh, that, that means, you know, I did the, the full game plus every collectible plus every Musfelheim, Niflheim challenge, killed all the Valkyries. Like I couldn't put it down. Like, yeah, it's a it's a really gripping world. Like, and and we're you know, we can talk a bit more about the world that they built here in a little bit. But um, they they did a really good job pulling you in. And the fact that you said you didn't notice it was one take shows how well they did that. Right. The best thing you can say about camera work is that you didn't notice how good it was while you were experiencing. <laughs> Correct. And they did such a good job of always keeping it. F- um, games have a. F- a tendency when you get to post game stuff to just fall flat. It feels a little dead. Like, yeah, you can go do your challenges, but you're checking boxes. Yeah. It, it doesn't feel like a lived in world anymore. Cause all the content that they put out is now gone. But the banter between Mimir and Atreus and Kratos did not cease. I, I think I finished it around hour 30, uh, the main part of the game. And it took me another 20 to get through all the extra stuff. And I never felt like it was empty. Like it just kept going. I would listen to a podcast where every day they just put in a new Lake of the Nine story in the feed. Like, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there, there's just, again, 50 hours in, Mimir still had new things to say about shit, and Atreus and him would banter back and forth, and Kratos would, like, grunt to himself as they, you know, make fun of him. Like, I don't know. It just it kept it fresh. It, it really does. Um, that actually... Um, leads into you know keeping it fresh is something they they continually did with this game by you know adding Mimir once and then at some point you also regain your signature blades of chaos right and that like you're a dozen hours into this game at this point and like just to completely upend the combat system with that is really a feat that was one of my favorite moments of this game so I've been playing God of War since the beginning like the beginning beginning uh and I was a little bummed at the beginning of the game to see him without Blades of Chaos, but I understood, you know, this is a different take on the game. And I remember the moments leading up to him going back to get those, like every time I play it, and I've played it three times now, the hair stands up on the back of my neck. Like that is one of the, I don't, I don't know, that's one of the most impeccable moments in gaming ever. Like you can feel it coming. Uh, and it's so quiet. It's a quiet lead up too. He's, he sits in a boat. No words are spoken. I think it's a full two or three minutes where he just sits in silence while the world just storms around him and the ominous music is playing and he goes back to his home, rips up the floorboards and gets out the blades and it's like, it's time to 
fuck some shit up. Yeah, it's worth noting that the reason he is doing this is for his son, right? Like it's it's emotionally resonant that he is, you know, making this thing that he swore he would never do happen because, you know, he needs to save Atreus. Yeah, he's literally going to hell and back for his son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's right before you head to Helheim for the first time. Um, you know, that reveal is intense, but it's also really like a mechanical epiphany for the game too, because it immediately allows for more enemies due to the fact that the Blades of Chaos are great for crowd control, right? You're hitting multiple enemies, wide swings. Um, it really allows the game to escalate what you're doing in combat at the same time as it's making this huge emotional move. It's it's just brilliant. I agree. I feel like most, of, and I hate to say it, but I feel like most of these moves in this game were we're on par with that. Like every time things felt like uh, it might stall out soon, they would just boom, crank it, crank it to the next thing. There'd be some huge moment like this. And then you shift past it and you're like, holy shit, there's a whole new game all over again. I know it's really great. Like when they, the way they start with the new, with the X, like this is new Kratos. He's all, and then they sort of slowly layer back in the classic Kratos where he's like ripping and tearing and getting his blades of chaos going on. Like it's both, taking the series forward and doing all of the like respect that the the series as a long-running franchise deserves yeah i loved it i think they did a great job with that i, I love the whole game i'm obviously <laughs> i'm biased here yeah, I, I, yeah. I love the shit out of this game enough to play again my time is time is money and t- time is everything and i'm about to have a kid and what did i do i'm like i need to play this again so that we can talk about it for when my son is born yeah, I mean, this. You're not. If you came to this podcast to hear us really take God of War 2018 to task, I'm sorry. That's not what this is going to be. This is going to be us talking about a game that's you know emotionally resonant and mechanically like pretty bulletproof. I I don't I don't have a ton bad to say about this game. So yeah, we're just going to keep on talking sugar. <laughs> yeah, this is 10 out of 10 for me all day every day. So <laughs> if you're looking for some counterpoint, I'm this time it's not going to be me. But yeah, let's let's talk a little bit more about sort of the the world that they built up here for uh, Kratos and Atreus to to journey through. Um, obviously, a, a game is only as good as you know the world that they built for it. I've talked before. I think the the real strength of the medium is the fact that they can build a world around you that you can fully immerse yourself in. And you know, Midgard and the other eight realms of the Norse mythology are really well realized here. I guess it's not all all nine realms that you're visiting it's about six of the six of the yeah just about see i expected some dlc here to to get us through the rest but i think it's just gonna have to be another game yeah so i mean you're in midgard which is like the realm that kind of like branches out to everything else you go to alfheim where the elves are from i think you also go well obviously you go to helheim hell uh let's see where else do you go muspelheim niflheim those kind of felt like extras 
Yeah, Muspelheim and Niflheim were interesting. They were sort of like mechanical challenge realms. Like, Muspelheim is sort of a combat challenge. Niflheim is sort of a dungeon randomized maze puzzle thing. Um, they're, they're all very distinct, though. Like, Muspelheim is fiery and, like, volcanic, and Niflheim is misty and mysterious. Um, they're just all very distinct, and they all have, like, very strong color palettes. Like, they're just excellently designed. Yeah, I liked how they did it. I mean, I gotta be honest, if I had to pick a low point of the game, it would definitely be Muspelheim and Niflheim, but those those are not required for the game at all. They are just challenge areas. Uh, it's honestly what I would have assumed uh, a, a later DLC would have been, but it's just part of the game, um, and, and it's completely optional. Honestly, I didn't do it at all this time. Uh, they're only really helpful to get new gear and you only really need to get the new gear if you're going to do end game stuff like try to beat all the Valkyries. That's like extreme level challenge. I've only done it once super hard and I did it with all the best gear in the game. Yeah, and I'm not I I honestly didn't engage much with Muspelheim or Niflheim, but uh I appreciated the fact that they put them there probably for, you know, long running series fans that are more interested in an arcade style combat challenge like that. I think it's a really nice way to layer back in some of that classic, you know, combo combat challenge. For sure. Yep, I understand why it was there. It was good. Everything else was just so good that if I had to pick a low point, that was it. But it's not even part of the game, really. It's just an extra, so. Yeah. Um, Midgard, I mean, (laughs) Midgard is probably one of the overworlds that I most enjoy being in. Like, the Lake of the Nine is just beautiful, the, the text that you're getting from the characters while you're going through there is engaging. Um, Midgard and the Lake of the Nine in particular in this game to me was like a, a very much a revelation. Like this and Zelda Breath of the Wild's overworld are like my two favorite places to be in gaming as of this recording. <laughs> yeah, that's why I never quit playing the game. Like it always felt interesting and fun. And the other cool thing about Lake of the Nine is it's constantly changing on you. So I think at three points during the game, uh, the water level shifts and suddenly that island that you could only get to like a fourth of before and you're like there might be more to this all of a sudden there's a whole new area there that is recontextualized because the water has dropped a little bit more and it just keeps happening like that and there's always something new to see yeah it's great the way they they build it into a character too um uh, the world serpent who you continually sort of go to for various things throughout the game is the chief you know, world shifter in terms of the sea level. And at one point, you even end up in his belly. It is quite a, uh, quite a scene. <laughs> Very God of War of them. It was, it was, it was a quick, it was a quick level, which I thought was perfect any longer. And it might've, you know, been overstated its welcome, but it was perfect. I was like, you have to know if you played previous God of Wars, you're going to, you're going to end up in that thing at some point. Yeah. I mean, even from the first game where you're fighting the Hydra on the yep. boat in the opening scene, like, Man, this game's always just had a real thing with, like, big, fantastic boss spectacles. And, you know, there's not a ton of that in this game, but the World Serpent definitely sort of filled that quota for me in terms of, like, wow, this is gigantic and, like, at a scale that rarely you see in games. Yep, that and the uh, the Stonemason Giant, for sure. Those those definitely scratch that itch. It's always been a game that's about that sort of bigger, you know, larger-than-life action, but... It also, still when you're getting down to navigating the world and into the nitty-gritty of going through uh, place to place, there's a lot of interesting puzzles that they layer into this game um, that 
uh, team up really nicely with the additional abilities you're unlocking for Kratos and Atreus. Um, some of the ones I can think of off the top of my head are uh, when you get the bowstring with the light from Elfheim, you can activate light bridges, shock arrows, uh, take down red crystal sap gates, uh, and the blades of chaos can harness hell's wind. Yeah, and these are all things you're seeing throughout the game, and you're like, okay, I can't get past this for now, but I'm going to remember that for later. And then sure enough, you get a new ability, and you're like, oh, I can think of like three places right now where I can circle back and get something out of that. And because of the way the hub-and-spoke world is built off that Lake of the Nine thing, it's never hard to get where you're going. So it's never a ton of backtrack either. It was just really well done. Yeah, it, it really is. And because I'm me, I'm going to compare this to Dark Souls and say this is sort of a Dark Souls 2 level design <laughs> thing. Uh, Hub and Spoke is sort of how they did that game. Obviously, it's not the first thing to do that. But, um, you know, Dark Souls is a reference for me. So I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, but yeah, they also, the Metroidvania aspect of adding in all of those ability combat lock and key puzzle systems didn't feel as gamey as it normally does to me in this game because all of them did such a good job integrating into the story, right? Like there was a good reason for you to um, get the light of Alfheim. Um, maybe the shock arrows sort of seemed a little, you know, arbitrary, but eh, whatever. Fuck that. You killed a dragon. You had to get something cool out of that. Amen, brother. And uh, yeah, I uh, absolutely loved using those things. It was probably my go-to for him. Yeah. But on, on more of a micro level, I, I think one of the other great things that this game did outside of its, its world was its characters. I think the characters that they that they built and that filled that world really made it special. Yeah, your primary antagonist in this uh, game is uh, Balder, who is the son of Freya and Odin, uh, who sort of lingers in the background of this game but is never actually seen. And Balder is immune to all types of damage or so as Mimir would say he is immune from all types of harm both magical and physical <laughs> yeah his his brain got a little <laughs> fucked up when you cut his head off but uh <laughs> but yeah balder is a tragic guy i mean as as all the the he's very much are, a tragic figure yeah yeah his mom foresaw a tragic death for him and tried to do him a favor and you know Gave him, I guess, cast a spell on him to 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 make him invulnerable. But all that also took away all of his feeling, all of his ability to enjoy life. Like it, it basically made life vanilla forever for him. Sorry, vanilla fans, chocolate's better. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like he he hates his life because he he can't enjoy anything. So he lives this ever undying but unfulfilled life, and he hates his family for it. He hates his mom for it. And yeah, yeah, he's a very tragic character. And the final confrontation with Balder really is heartbreaking. Like it is a, it's such an interesting juxtaposition between um, his and Kratos' relationship and Freya and Balder's relationship. Freya being his mother, and it's because it's at this point to take Balder down. Kratos and Atreus are clicking like never before. Like at one point, he throws Kratos over the top of his head and he starts shooting arrows down at Balder to like stun him so Kratos can get a final like big hit on him. It's just, it's awesome. But um, Freya, at the same time, is trying to stop you from harming him because she wants nothing but to protect her son. And at the end of this fight, you know, you tell uh, Balder to go away and, like, not harm Kratos and Atreus, but also not to harm Freya. And he goes and tries to murder her. Yeah, and she's willing to die just to make him happy. Like, she's like, if, if me dying is what it takes to make you whole again, then then do it. And that's what finally that's what finally ends it. Obviously, 
Kratos tries to be the bigger the bigger man for once, and he's gonna walk away like he's like again he's he's murdered God after God after God. You've been doing it with him for you know two decades now, but he walks away from this one. But then you know Balder goes to murder his mother, and he says you know no more, and just ends it. The cycle ends here, but it doesn't. It starts another cycle, which brings up the whole other. I guess concept for this game, are we prisoners of fate or can we choose to be more than who we are? And the question is, I do, can we? I don't know. Kratos is trying, but it still seems to keep circling back at him. Yeah, it's a game about change. You know, can a man truly change? Some of the most resonant games I can think of in terms of theming and, you know, just in life, some of the most re- resonant video games to me are about that. You know, Disco Elysium was about that. Uh, Planescape Torment is about that. It's really... Uh, it's a powerful thing to invoke, and um, this game leaves a question unanswered uh, because, you know, who can really answer that question? Yeah, I don't know. All, all I know is that it just constantly tried to say, you know, your past doesn't dictate your future. People can change. We must be better, and we have to try to leave the world better than we found it. Balder is obviously like a, a huge pivotal point of this game, but there's other antagonists as well. You know, you you have Magni and Modi, his nephews, uh, Thor's sons. They're um, sort of just bumbling god godlets, and you, well, you take them out. <laughs> that, that's kind of how they portray Thor, too. Uh, some drunk bastard with a hammer is kind of how they, they, they portray that guy. Obviously, he, he's not really in the game. If you get to end game credits, you'll see him for a moment. Clearly, he's going to be a big part of the... The next game, you've murdered his sons in this one, so mm-hmm. he pissed. Uh, but, uh, I also liked how they really portrayed all these gods, especially like Odin and Thor and all these guys. It's like these really paranoid... I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. They portray them as deeply insecure and like always needing to impress Odin. And for whatever reason, even though they're the most powerful beings in existence, they always seem like in one way or another unfulfilled. Yeah, and they're always they're always afraid of this, uh, you know, pro- prophesized Ragnarok where the world's going to end, and they all end up killing each other. They're basically it's a self fulfilling prophecy. If they just left things alone, things would be fine. But they've all turned into these insecure little assholes that have to, you know, fuck with everything. And now they're basically going to take down. They're sinking their own ship, basically. Yeah, it's a good thing that no one in real life can see the future because that's exactly how all this would play out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But. Aside from the antagonists, obviously you've got a couple main characters that you see time and time again that I think was what made the game really special for me. So obviously we talked about Mimir earlier. He's the smartest man on earth. At some point in the game you cut his head off, reanimate it, and you carry it around on your belt. Now that sounds like a far-fetched thing, but in this world it kind of felt normal. And it was hilarious. I mean, North mythology is weird. I mean, it, sure, yeah. it's weird. It's weird by like real world logic, but it, it fits right into you know North mythical uh, text. You know. <laughs> yep. The way it was handled was, like I said, he was almost the voice of Kratos' conscious. He, he, I don't know. It was just one of those strokes of genius. I felt without him, it wouldn't have been the same game. I really liked how they did that. Freya was there, obviously, to help you along the way. But the the two that I really enjoyed outside of your your main trio of Atreus, Kratos, and Mimir would have been Brock and Sindri. These two are polar opposite dwarf brothers that kind of act as your shop. 
right? Yeah, so a big innovation of this game is that there is this like pretty in-depth gear and crafting system. You know, you're gathering materials, you're crafting new armor, uh, upgrades for your weapons, skills, etc. And Brock and Sindri are your uh, way to do that. They are, like uh, you said, Clint, blacksmiths. Uh, and yeah, Brock is like this real rough-talking, dirty, swearing dude, and Sindri is like sort of an effete, like cleanly germaphobe yeah world's biggest hypochondriac it was i don't know those two characters in in i mean of course they're they're strange at the beginning of the game they talk shit about each other and then by the end of course you you bring them back together but just the way they talked about each other and to each other and to you again it's more that organic conversationalism brock was funny as fuck like I, i i hope we cut in a couple of his uh, little uh, tidbits here. Yeah, leaving a blind pig farts up a truffle now and again. Just discussing the weather. A bit of a cold snap lately. What he means is, Thimble winter's upon us, boys. The winter to end all winners. I can feel it in my throat. Y- yeah. We... We heard. Those guys are good. And Sindri's funny, too. And the funny, the great thing about this whole arc that they go on throughout the course of the game, you know, not only is your your crafters and your main side quest givers, but um, they have this thing where at the beginning they were separated because of a disagreement that they had, but you bring them back together, and the two parts of the brand they use to brand their equipment is reforged at the end. And um, they are, you know, like you said, polar opposites, but still you can tell they deeply care about each other at one point brock is asking asking about you um of sindri you know is he eating okay is he doing all right <laughs> i just think it's funny that every time that either one of them sees you like you didn't let my t- my brother touch that axe again and then they'll like sit there and they're like i'm gonna make it better and then they just smack it randomly with a hammer. like yeah there it's better just so that they can be the last one that touched it like and nothing nothing changed <laughs> They're just being assholes to each other. Yeah, it's super petty and funny, and it real it makes them realize probably that the disagreement that they have was petty and useless, and you know, getting back together and doing their best work as a duo is really what these two are all about. And again, that's what Kratos is learning with Atreus and everyone else too. It's 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 kind of a it's a buddy comedy at times, which is so weird for God of War, but it worked so well, and I loved it. Yeah, if you would if you would have told me like at the end of God of War three that the turn this franchise needed to make to become fresh and, and new again was to, you know, like you said, become a, a buddy comedy slash father son road trip adventure, I would have been like, say what? Yeah, fuck <laughs> off. That's not what this game is. But on, on on paper, it sounds ridiculous. But in practice, it was so perfect. It really was. Um, and they continue to flesh out this world with these uh, characters as well uh, as they, like I was t- saying earlier, give you side quests. You do favors for Brock and Sindri that allow you to get new equipment. Um, Clint, you alluded to the Valkyries, which serve as like high-end combat um, tests, so one-on-one against an extremely overpowered foe. Uh, the Valkyries are terrifying in this game. Like They are way faster than Kratos, and really the only chance you have is because there's two of you. Yeah, pretty much. So actually, did you ever get through all of them? No. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so so there's eight Valkyries, and those are hard enough. I would say any single one of the Valkyries is harder than any of the bosses in the game, including Final Boss. So eight of those, and then there is a, I guess, Queen of the Valkyries that just take those and be like, yeah, those are shit. 
Uh, basically, you almost have to do all the all the extra end game stuff to get the best equipment in the game to even think about taking that on. I did it once. Very difficult. Glad I did. What do you think about the sequel implications for this game? Like they set up a lot of stakes. They left a lot of things unfilled in terms of backstory. Um, what what has you thinking and what do you think they might go down in terms of a path with this? I have a few thoughts. I would be lying if I told you that one of my standard Google searches when I'm bored is uh, God of War 5. Like I, I just, I'm always <laughs> trying to get more info on this. If I had to venture a guess, just out of, out of thin air, we do know that PS5 is coming out um, in the holiday season this year, and I have a f- strange feeling we'll either see something at release for to be a release title, or we'll see it in the spring because that'll mark three years, I think. It, I mean, it's it's no question. It's going to happen. Yes, this is one of the biggest hits ever. And if Corey Barlog does not head this again, I'm going to be pissed. Like, he was the one that I think had experience on God of War 1 and 2, and they brought him back to reimagine it. And it's his vision that really brought it to where it is today. Obviously, the whole team's amazing, but it was his creative direction that, that took it where it's at. Yeah, and, and you know, big AAA games these days are made by a thousand plus people, so you can't pin all the success on one guy. But Corey Barlog's vision for the series and the character, um, as a longtime worker on the the property, is definitely felt. And like you said, he was an animator on God of War one and one and two, I think, and then he moved into more senior positions. But yeah, so in terms of like actual context, I think there's definitely going to be a follow up with Freya. Because at the end of the game, like you don't leave things in a good place with her. Like she wants to, she said she wants to parade your entrails throughout the nine realms or something like that. Yeah, you've just killed her son. Now, granted, you did it to save her life, and I think uh, Mimir does have like a follow up. He's like, you need to give her time. She will get over this, and I think that that's true. I think ultimately, I see this as at at least a trilogy. So I think Barlog at one point said that he sees this arc as going one to five games. He doesn't believe that five games will be made, but He's going to be fucking 90 by that point. Well, that's what they said. They're like, well, this is going to t- take 25 fucking years. You guys took five five years to make this. And he's and at that, he said, you know, the next one won't take five years, which leads me to believe we're looking at something more like three because they've already built the engine and the idea, which would, again, three would bring us to 2021. I think it will be somewhere near the release of PS5, which is why they haven't talked anything about it yet because... They're keeping that super secret. So I we're supposed to hear about PS5 in March. So by the time you hear this, they might have already said it. Fair. And my my thought is that this the next one might be cross-gen, because if they keep the same engine, they'll be able to run it on PS4 and then do some uprising for PS5. Um, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Not only that, but like when we're talking about the Freya thing, like Invert that situation. If it was Freya that killed Atreus to save Kratos, you'd bet Kratos be out to kill that motherfucker. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I I, I think Freya's going to be a big protagonist. Also, they've dropped little hints. Like they, uh, I think, like a, a ye- even a year after the game released, they released a uh, PS4 theme, um, a God of War PS4 theme for you know your PS4. Where if you look in the background, there's some Norse. I mean, it was really low key, but there was just you know some Norse um, runes in the background, and people um, translated that, and it said Ragnarok is coming. Nice. It wasn't it wasn't very overt, but it was very you know subtle. But they knew people would pick up on it, and of course that's what everything is leading to. So 
as you're ending the game, Brock and Sindri and Mimir are all talking about the fact that you've heard Ragnarok referred to a ton of times, but they're all saying like, yeah, this is the winter to end all winters. I can feel it in my throat. Right before Ragnarok. And you go back to your home and it says several years later, to which I assume that means you're right on the cusp, if not at Ragnarok, which is this ultimate showdown between the gods, the giants, and everything else that ends the world, basically. Yeah, it, it, it's going to be God of War Ragnarok. In the grand Marvel tradition of names with colons in them, brings you God of War Ragnarok. <laughs> I, I have every inclination that this next game is going to be all about Ragnarok. Obviously, Thor is going to play a big part. So, in my mind, Corey Barlog can have all the hopes and dreams that he wants, but this will be a trilogy like everything else is a trilogy. So, I'm assuming next iteration is Freya and Thor, followed by next iteration being Freya comes back around and you kill Odin together. That seems reasonable. Nice prediction. Put it put it in your books, guys. Clint Jones, prediction. God of War 3, you kill Odin. With Freya. Great Odin's Raven. Jesus uh, yeah. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, I don't know why. Okay, I, I, and I can't speak as to why this was, but that was the one collectible like I felt compelled to do. Most collectibles seem dumb. But killing Odin's ravens, it just is like a spiteful <laughs> act. I'm like, I'm going to kill every last one of those sons of bitches. <laughs> oh, man. You know what I hope we get? And I don't know, like, you know, if this series goes on until Cory Barlog is 90, maybe we get an Arthur Morgan arc for Kratos where, like, he dies and his protege takes his place. We get to play as, you know, Atreus taking the Blades of Chaos from his father's See, dead hands. I don't even know if I want that. I just love Kratos so much like i love i love the relationship he has with his son he can but, live forever he's a god well to be fair he died in uh, god of war 3 and yet here we are that was the end he finally got his sweet release but yet he's here yeah yet here we are yeah he's escaped from hell a million times he doesn't literally every god of war game if Kratos ever dies it's just to show how much of a badass he is because he's gonna kill his way out of hell because he can just do that yeah. If there's eight installments, he's done it at least eight times. He did it well, twice they, in this one. What what they have to do is they have to bring him to a point where he wants to accept death, right? Like I thought that's what the out. last one was. Yeah, that's a good point. But he did make a bit of a foreshadowing statement, and this game did an excellent job at foreshadowing. So as I said, I've replayed it multiple times. It did an awesome job of subverting its surprises, but also foreshadowing a lot like as you play it a second time you're like holy shit like this was laid out like they didn't hide this at all but the first time you're playing it you know you don't see it coming at least i didn't but uh he does say at the end like uh he's oh god what did atreus ask me asked him something about like hey um would you let me kill you and he says if it meant that you would live then yes and that's like one of the last main lines of dialogue you get before you finish. And, you know, with that, maybe we should talk a little bit about this, how this game actually looks and feels in terms of, you know, 
it is a technical feat. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about how it's all done in sort of one continuous over-the-shoulder shot, and then it's, um, you know, its camera sort of shifts as the scene demands to, you know, pan out for, you know, Kratos and Atreus talking or um, shifts into, like, a first-person perspective at one point when you're, like, running uh, towards Kratos and running towards, uh, like, an attack or something like that. It's a game that, like, really has a strong graphical um, feel. I agree. So they learned that trick from God of War 3, if you've ever played that one. It does bring it close for impact. The graphics in this game are beautiful, by the way. You can see every pore on Kratos' skin. Which, for better or worse, yeah, yeah, like they they do a very good job of that, and they and they they know their limitations too. Um, so this is open world, but I never saw any clipping, no loading screens. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, um, they they disguise that really well with like passages that you squeeze through to give you sort of like a smaller, you know, this is like a trick that's used pretty commonly now, and I don't know that God of War is the first to do it, but you'll squeeze through a small passage to like slow the characters down and give a new scene time to load in. It's very effective and like makes sense. It's it's a real good way of, um, you know, ludo narratively justifying the fact that we need to load a new area in. They subvert it very well. Sometimes you can you can tell the man behind the curtain is pulling strings. In in, in this game, I never like was like, oh, I know what they're doing there. I mean, like we know because we do we play games all the time. We know how this works. But I I never like it. Never pulled me out of the experience. Same, yeah. Um, another interesting thing is that they used a lot of motion capture in this game, like Christopher Judge and Sonny Soljic, um, in full motion cap gear with the dots and everything like that were a big part of the production of this game and really like made a a huge appearance in Raising Kratos, that documentary we were talking about above. And at times it felt like um, Corey Barlog was more of a film director going into this game than he was like a video game director. You know, like he, I'm sure he had oversight on mechanics, but he really was directing the drama very much so. Yeah, I think uh, so when these people all of them got the script for this originally and some other things they all thought they were trying out for game of thrones by the way (laughs) (laughs) they get the part and then they find out they're in a video game like this is a video game like what game has this depth and all this other stuff i thought it was funny but but yeah to your point i think that sells it at such a high level that other games like there's so many nuances just in the human face as you're trying to convey emotion or surprise or annoyance that all right you're expecting some guy that's animating to capture all that when he's putting together he's not going to get that but with all that motion capture you can get every last little nuance and it really sells it yeah there's so much that goes on with facial expressions that you don't realize you're missing until you see an actual human do it versus an animated face and we (laughs) we talked about this with disco elysium but man like the L.A. Noir approach to this versus this game's approach to portraying emotion is just so different. Like, nothing's overstated, everything's subtle. That's what makes God of War work. None of the themes are thrust in your face. Everything is the context of the scene and the slow build of these characters interacting with each other. Yep, and it made it a beautiful experience in my opinion.
The main thing that keeps this game fresh, we've talked about it uh, at length here, is the relationship with Atreus. Um, Kratos is basically teaching Atreus to be a god. Atreus is teaching Kratos to be human with his curiosity, respect, and friendliness. Um, it's a really interesting give and take. Like, this isn't just Kratos teaching Atreus. This is also Atreus teaching Kratos. Yeah, in a lot of ways. But one of my favorite moments, again, Kratos is doing his best through the entire game. Kratos knows how to do one thing, kill everything in sight. And, you know, he's always encouraging his son in combat and all these things because it's what he knows how to do. But one of my favorite moments, too, was when, you know, Kratos is always asking Atreus to read this or read that. And there's a moment where Atreus is like, Dad, let me show you how to read this. He, like, he sits down and tries to teach Kratos how to read. And it's just so funny because it's just like... <laughs> it's great. <laughs> yeah. It was a sweet, touching moment. It's like, no, he's going to turn around and show... And that's what having kids is like, too. It's you learn from them, they learn from you. Like, they think of shit that you would never would have thought of. I know how to read, boy. Yeah. Just not this tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, it was very sweet. Again, it's hard to imagine that a game about violence and killing can be this touching and emotional. But it really, I'm a I'm a guy that does not express a ton of emotion, especially around video games. But there's a few moments where I almost cried in this game a couple times. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of, of moments like that. The emotional stakes are super high. This is a quieter game than previous God Awards. You know, Kratos is older. He's aged. Um, it's really about him trying to be better and pass down something better and pass down the right lessons to his kid yeah and i really enjoyed watching it come to its conclusion where they learn you know obviously you can't just push away what you are you are what you are and you need to come to terms with it and you need to be open about it because when you do that you can truly heal and you can truly be better and they both learn that lesson obviously atreus couldn't be better until he understood what he truly was and kratos couldn't be better until he finally admitted to everyone that you know what he was a monster and to a lot of people, he still is, but to his son, he wants to be dad. And he's going to do everything he can to, to fulfill that. And uh, with that, why don't we do our three-word reviews? My three-word review is Dad of Boy. God of War has come a long way since quick time events to make Kratos hop up on a bed for a quick bang. Uh, I don't usually replay games, uh, you know, says the guy who recently admitted to being on his fourth run through Dark Souls. Um, but I'll be damned if this wasn't an awesome experience. Um, I was super happy to revisit this game, and this is about as well as a AAA game can do a reboot or reimagining. It's a series that has grown in complexity and maturity as it's aged, and this isn't, you know, press X to comfort your son. It's a heartfelt story told elegantly through mechanics and writing. It's also a game about radical change, the kind that becoming a father brings. Father-son relationship is so pivotal to this game that its overall success redefined Kratos as a character, not as the god of war, but as the dad of boy. Very nice. My three-word review was, that's my boy. <laughs> and for a lot of reasons. 
for one, I've been playing as Kratos since college. Like, I love Kratos. I love Kratos the way he was forever ago, but we all know things can't remain the same. Things need to grow, things need to change, and seeing Kratos as a character mature from this, you know, cold, murderous, revenge-filled fiend to a worried, heartfelt dad that's just worried about trying to make sure his son is okay was truly heartwarming for me. Like, again, I was contemplating my own journey into fatherhood as I started playing this game, and it really spoke to me and showed me, like, hey, look, it's going to be okay. You can do this. This is something we all deal with, and you're going to come out okay. And, and it just made me feel good about the whole experience to a point where I just couldn't believe a video game could ever speak to me in that way. And when Kratos finally comforts his son and lets Atreus ask to carry his mom's ashes up the mountaintop like four or five times, and Kratos always says no. And when he finally said yes at the end this morning, I, a, a tear was like rolling down my cheek. Like, I can't wait to be a dad. And when you guys hear this, I will be one. And I, I just, I, I learned a lot from this and I hope you guys all take something out of it too. It's This is, could not be more of a two thumbs up. This is a, a Clint Jones gold star, five thumbs up, must play. <laughs> four, four at least, you know, you got the big toes too. Yeah. <laughs> Me and my son, it's, it's uh, four thumbs up. Me and my son. My congratulations to you and Emily. You know, this hasn't come to pass yet, but congrats in advance. I can't wait to meet him. I hope he likes video games as much as we do, because uh, I, <laughs> I assume he's the fourth member of the podcast. I love it. Uh, with that, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been Pixelated Playgrounds. I'm Brian Skersha. And I'm Clint Jones. And I'm a dad. Take care and keep on gaming. It's really incredible how they balanced everything too, you know, like this is a long-running series, over a decade of games, and they managed to keep the the fans of the series on board while bringing in this sort of much more enlightened and progressive theme of fatherhood, you know, it takes a very deft hand to do that. And I don't even know how they manage that, so you watch the documentary, so you want you, you understand because you've seen the same things like Kratos is clearly one of the most iconic video game characters of all time he'd be on the Mount Rushmore probably 100% who we got alright so Mario all right. <laughs> who's your own hold on we gotta we gotta pick five okay so <laughs> Sonic Mario um Master Chief Kratos oh for sure Master Chief Kratos who's your fifth um Edward, uh, or no, um, uh, Freeman, Gordon Freeman, Gordon Freeman. Yes, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and Doom Guy, he's just hiding off in the corner. Yeah, yeah, sort of. He's like a tiny statue that's at the, uh, at the I don't base. Know, Doom Guy's cool. I, I don't have anything against Doom Guy. Doom Guy is Master Chief of the same fucking guy. We'll, we'll find that out in, uh, in Halo 8 
and Doom 10. <laughs> He's been the same guy the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When uh, Microsoft eventually buys id, we're, we're all good on that. <laughs> Turns out, same dude. All right. But, yeah, anyway, he's one of the most iconic guys ever, so to change the formula on him was a super risky move, but one of my favorite moments in the documentary, and I remember feeling this personally, which is why this resonated too, I remember when they showed that for the first time, they they show the God of War trailer, they don't tell anybody it's a God of War trailer, and you just hear a voice in the background, and all of a sudden Kratos steps out of the shadows, talking to his son with his big ass viking beard and people go apeshit we're just so excited to see him again like we all thought we were done with kratos Makes me very sad. I looked at March and April of 2020, and they're looking stacked as fuck, and I'm just like, I'm not going to even be sleeping at that point, much less playing video games. Do you think you'll have time to squeeze in Doom Eternal? Thanks, boy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm for sure finding time. So he's got to sleep sometime, and that's when I'll slay demons. It'll be fine. I'll, br- I'll bring him on. He can explain why he didn't let me sleep or play video games, and then you can berate him to no end. <laughs> Boy. Boy. <laughs> you have a chance to divert from this path you're on. Yeah. This path is bullshit. Let your dad sleep. He wants to play video games. <laughs> One can hope. Yeah, we'll he probably see. won't understand that until he's old enough to understand this podcast. And at that point, it's too late. He'll be on the podcast, and it'll be fine. Right? Yeah. I, I would love for him to be able to come on and do his own three-word review. That is total nonsense. That we can add into post-roll. Absolutely. I think that'll like, be that. That'll be dope. It's like, what did you think? <laughs> and then it could be dumb as shit, and we'll just put it in post post-roll. And there you go. You know, I I totally agree, and you know, kids are endearing. So, big big opportunity for the pod, I have to say. Good job. Thanks for having a kid, Clint. Yeah, you got it. <laughs>
Boy! 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 Come, boy! Stay back, boy! 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 Jump, boy! 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 Come, boy! Boy! Wait, boy! Steady, boy! 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 Leaving, boy! 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 Boy!